This morning we are continuing the study of the book of Colossians. So I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible, there is a blue pew Bible provided for you, and you can turn to page 984. May God bless the reading of his holy word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The word of the Lord. Let's pray as we come to the word. Lord, we trust you, having given us this word by your spirit, preserved it these many centuries for our benefit. Lord, that you would now open up our hearts to it. You who have died for your church, you who have committed to nourish and cherish us because we are your body. Oh, Lord, come and enrich us even now by your mighty spirit. For we ask it for your glory and honor. Amen. As you uh, probably know, you can go online and see some of those films of the early attempts at flying. I mean, for a huge laugh that it would almost put me on the floor, you should look that up. It's not really pretty, of course. Uh, One guy, for instance, stands before the camera, and he has these two huge wings and a giant empennage, uh, uh, which they call a tail assembly, right? And it's got flat part and a fin. And he calls it an ornithopter. For ornithology, you know, study of birds, it's an ornithopter. Because he says he believes a man can fly like a bird. And so here it shows him running down the field with his empennage trailing on the ground. Just hate it to see a guy's empennage trailing on the ground like that, you know. Um, but they and these these things look like giant pieces of styrofoam, and they sound like that old tin we used to rattle at my grandmother's chicken houses. It's a really comical thing. And of course, he doesn't ever lift off and finally gets on a rock, jumps off six foot rock, and the empennage and wings just drive him to the ground, you know. He's like, instead of lifting him up uh, they, like a bird, they squash him like a bug. Well, not only him, but you see other guys running with various forms of wings or riding bikes with wings or having rockets attached to them and having to be rescued lest they be incinerated uh, by their contraption. And even planes with wings that are trying to flap. One of them was flapping like this. Once it was turned on, 
you know, that was going to lift the whole plane up. Just incredible. But that's where we were at that point, right? Had no idea what we were doing. And I think it's a helpful picture for us in what Paul has been describing in Colossians up to this point. Because he has been warning these uh, people at Colossae uh, against these bogus attempts through asceticism, uh, deprivation of the body, keeping various days, to enter into the very worship of angels in the very presence of God. To try to have the highest visions of God himself. And here in Colossians 3, ironically, he says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth. And he includes among those things on the earth, these very religious practices he has been warning them about. And so for Paul... The things that are earthly include religions that claim to bring people into heaven. Even Jewish religion that has rejected Jesus as Messiah. So these religions really are just like these early attempts at flying. They do no people no more good in getting them into the presence of God than those silly contraptions got people into the air. They do nothing. Absolutely nothing. And they're, they're the things of this earth, not the things of heaven. And so we could say that the religions of this world that claim through meditation, whatever means to take people into the highest spiritual realms, are no better spiritually than styrofoam wings on a man jumping off a rock. No effort of any kind by any human being can bring us into the presence of God. In Scripture, in Christianity, we don't strive and sacrifice and deprive ourselves and follow rule after rule in order that we might get into heaven or in order that we might finally, in the first place, have fellowship with God and have a relationship with God. In Christianity, it's the opposite. You begin in heaven because you start joined to Christ who is in heaven. Your life as a Christian on earth from its beginning is sustained by the very life of heaven, by the very life of Christ himself. So it's the opposite. It works in the opposite direction of what religion tends to say. So that you have to be of heaven to live godly on the earth. You have to be of heaven. And by God's grace, he catches us up there through the precious work of his own son. Now, this passage in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, the first three verses are structured pretty neatly in that it starts with being raised with Christ. And then in verse 3, he has, you have died. So these are kind of the bookends of this part, these first three verses. You've been raised, you've died. And in the middle, as a result of being raised and as a result of having died, 
You seek the things above. You set your mind on the things above. This double uh, command that he gives. And the whole focus of what you seek above is Christ himself. Christ's name mentioned four times in these verses. Uh, it's a, a total orientation uh, to Christ in, these, in this passage. He is the whole sum and substance of your life, the whole goal of your life. And the, these commands are present tense. Keep on seeking. Keep on setting your mind on these things. Now, I want to spend uh, most of our time trying to get at what Paul means by seeking the things above. If you're like me, when you read that, it's kind of abstract. You know, do I, how do I seek things above and think about things above and how does that affect me here? Uh, what things do I think about up there that are going to change my life? Because apparently, he says, that's to be the whole orientation of your life is seeking those above things. And sometimes we think so spatially uh, that we, we really lose what the passage is about. So I'd like for us to look uh, at the meaning of what, it mean, what, what is seeking things above. Now, in verse 1, this is conditioned, and, and the real underscoring is where Christ is. That's the whole point, where Christ is. And then he has the phrase, seated at the right hand of God. Why does he put it this way? What does that have to do with our life? How does that condition my seeking the things above? Well, this phrase actually refers to Psalm 110, verse 1, which uh, speaks of the messianic king being put on his throne by God himself. And that this messianic king is himself a lord. Okay, that, that's that, that verse is, is referred to more than any other verse in the New Testament. It's kind of the whole uh, center focus of the New Testament. Our king has died and now he reigns over all things. And so they referred to that verse constantly. And the right hand is the place of absolute power and absolute privilege. And because Christ is seated, unlike the angels that are standing around him, the angels that serve him, this indicates that he himself has taken the reins of sovereignty. He himself is ruling. That's the true king who sits, okay? So he is sitting with the Father and rules with the Father. Now, again, this is not, this is figurative language and he doesn't mean here that you're to have in your mind some picture of a throne on the right side of God's throne and you picture Jesus sitting there and you picture the Father on that throne. If you just keep picturing that, it's going to change your life, you know? Martin Luther actually makes fun of artists who in his day had depicted, you know, the thrones up there and Jesus in his golden robe and all of this. He just mocked that. So that has nothing to do with this passage. Now, I'm not, to, I'm not mocking you if that's kind of how you've pictured this, but I'm just saying that's not the real point of this passage is to picture Jesus sitting on a throne. It's a figure to help us understand Being at the right hand of the Father means that Christ's sovereign rule pervades the whole earth. Okay? 
Being at the right hand of God means that Jesus Christ is everywhere doing His powerful will and moving history forward as He chooses. That's the image of Christ at the right hand of God. So what Paul is saying is to seek the things above where Christ is. Lord of the universe. That's your focus on this Lord of the universe. You see, uh, in Ephesians 4, verse 10, uh, a couple of books earlier, it says, He ascended far above the heavens so that He might fill all things. And that means fill all things with His powerful presence and rule. So it's not that He goes and now is isolated and separated from everything tidily, safely, there at the right hand of the Father. That's not the picture. The picture is pervasive rule in all places. Like Ephesians 1 that talks about Christ being exalted far above all rule and authority in the earth. And it says so that he will fill everything in every way. So this place is the place of sovereignty. It's the place of worldwide dominion. F.F. Bruce says this, Because he's been elevated to the position of highest sovereignty over the universe, he pervades the universe with his presence. And I love what Calvin says here, As to the right hand of God, it is not confined to heaven, but it fills the whole world. And Paul's mentioned it here to indicate that Christ encompasses us by his power, lest we should think that distance has created a separation between us and Him. So you see, the idea of Christ going to the right hand of the Father is not to make us think, oh, He's far away, it's to realize, wait now, His power that pervades the whole earth encompasses me and it encompasses all of my situations. All of my life is bound up in the majestic power of this Christ. That's what I'm to be thinking on. That's what I'm to be seeking. The realization and enjoyment and worship and submission to this majestic Lord who governs all things and encompasses me and embraces me graciously in His power to do me good. And this means that nothing can hold him out. Nothing can stop him from accomplishing his purposes. He is able to do all good to his people. How comforting is this? That nothing can stop Jesus from blessing you, from blessing his people. We are therefore bound up with him whose sovereign rule extends around the whole of the universe. We are, as this passage says, united to the Lord of the universe. Brothers and sisters, this is royalty. This is royalty that you are caught up and united to the Lord of the universe. And an important thing that I want to bring in here is that he reigns as the crucified Lord. His rule is the result of his sacrificial love for his people. Again and again in Scripture, it has that pattern. He died 
and was raised and exalted. Like in Philippians chapter 2, just one book earlier, if you want to turn there and you can uh, glance over that. But there it describes Christ's shocking humility in verses 5 and following, His shocking humility in His death on the cross. And then it says in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. It is because of His death, because of His loving sacrifice, that He is exalted. You see the same thing several times in Hebrews, giving the pattern, He died and then sat down at the right hand of God. And so He is He is enthroned as the crucified one. He's the one enthroned who sacrificed himself for his people. The enthroned lover of his people. The enthroned selfless one. That's who he is. And in Revelation 5, we we studied this when we studied Revelation in Sunday school a while back. But... In, in John 5, in, in Revelation 5, the problem is the seals, which represent the whole governing of history, they're, they're fastened. Nobody can open them. And John says, well, who's going to open them? And then Elder says, the Lion of Judah, he will open them. And so it's very interesting because he says, oh, the Lion of Judah. And then he turns to see the Lion of Judah and... He writes this, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Expecting a lion. And it is a lion. He is the lion. But he is the lamb that was slain. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is always seen as the gracious one who gave himself for his people? That's his glory in heaven. (laughs) That's His glory by which we admire Him and and adore Him and give ourselves up to Him. He's the Lamb who's slain for His people. And that is why they burst out singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And He takes the scroll and begins to open up the seals. The ruler of history is the Lamb who was slain. This one at the right hand of God is none other than the selfless one who gave himself for his people. That's why he is exalted to the right hand of God. That is why he has rule over all things. Because he manifested the boundless love of the Father in his sacrifice for his people. Wright says this, The qualities of self-giving love are the chief characteristics of the life of heaven. So when you're seeking the things above, what are you really seeking? You're seeking this one who was ultimately gloriously selfless in spending himself for his people. Again, the qualities of self-giving love are the chief characteristics of the life of heaven. And you see what Paul is saying when he says, you seek those things above and your life is bound up in him and you are united to him. 
He is saying that you must and you can walk in that love and all the powers and authorities in the world cannot prevent it because He is Lord. And you are joined to that selfless life to the one who is Himself Lord. And His life is in you and will be in you. So you are not only free from the guilt and punishment of sin as you're joined to Christ, but in joining yourself to Christ, you're being rescued from yourself. You're being rescued to walk in a new life of love. Joined to the life of the selfless Lord Himself. It's nothing less, of course, than the manifestation of God. Because this is what God is like. As Mark even prayed, this is the God who within himself is self-giving. And to us, he is the one who gives himself away. So, in the first place, we have this thing that, this uh, emphasis on Christ seated at the right hand of God. And by this we understand that we're seeking the one who is Lord over all. And we're seeking the one who is the selfless Lamb of God. And His life will be in us. And because He is Lord, it cannot be stopped. Because He is Lord, it will have its mighty effect in your life. To create in you that same selfless love. And we read... Also, in verse 4, this little phrase, when Christ who is your life appears. Christ who is your life. This points us to the fact that His life has become our life. So in the first place, we see that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In the second point, that Christ himself is our life. So that while we're here on earth, we're actually filled with the life of the Son who is in heaven. From the head who's in heaven, risen life fills us here below. And it's then, you see, that the sacrifice of love begins to take shape in our life because we begin to manifest the life of Christ. Right again says, Paul urges his readers to copy God himself in glad, outgoing love and to discover in Christ what it means to be truly human. To copy God Himself in glad, outgoing love. And so we don't engage in a daily battle with temptation in order to achieve a new life. The new life is your starting point for engaging with temptation, you see. Your being joined to Christ in His life is the beginning step of beginning, of, of living a new life, resisting temptation. And it's important to recognize, too, that when he says to set your minds on things above, not on, not on things of the earth, that is, does not mean forget the things of earth literally. Uh, we'll see that this has to do with the evil that is in the earth. And that's a, it's a phrase for that. 
And so later he has the most practical, in the most practical ways, talking about wives and husbands and parents and children and, and employers and, and slaves. And, and so it has everything to do with the way you live out your life. But it's the heavenly life, the life of Christ, manifesting itself in our lives day to day. Christ is your life. You may remember what Paul says in Galatians 2.20 where he says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And of course he doesn't mean that his life is absolutely gone, but he means that what was formerly the four walls of his life with all of its limitations and inability and failures is no longer just my life. It's not... It's not me so much that lives. The old me, just me, that lives. It is now Christ living in me. That's my life. That's another way to put Christ who is your life. And he goes on to say in that passage, I now live this life by faith in the Son of God. So this life that we have is life joined to the resurrected King over all things. And because it is His life, it will truly transform our lives. And it will be a life particularly of glad self-giving. And you get a little bit more of that idea by referring down to verse 5. Notice he says, "...put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you." Or literally it means, it reads, put to death your earthly members. And then he lists those, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. Later he talks about anger and wrath and lying. You see, those are the things of the earth. It's not literally earthy things like don't think about a movie, don't think about your work, you know, that kind of thing. Keep thinking about Jesus sitting on that throne up there and don't think about the stuff around you. That has nothing to do with this. But set your heart on the character of Christ. As he says in verse 12, put on as God's chosen ones compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, etc. So to seek the things above or to seek the new character that we have in Christ, the new life that we have in Christ. As he says there, to put on these things now. It's another way of saying, seek the things above. Seek this new life that you have in Christ and live it out fully in every way. It's interesting that just a page before in Philippians 4.8 Though he uses a different word for think, it's the same basic idea. He says, whatever is true and honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think on these things. It's the same thing as saying, think on the things above. Think on these kinds of things. Focus on this new character that is yours in Christ. It's the same contrast as in Galatians 5 where he says, Here are the works of the flesh, here is the fruit of the Spirit. The things of earth are the works of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit are the things above. But they're all focused in Christ, right? It's, it's yes, to think of all this character that I want to become a part of my life and to put on this new life but it's all focused in Christ and it's made effective in Christ. It's made sure in Christ. It has been won for us in Christ. 
And so there's this constant recognition of who I am and where I am in Christ Jesus and how I must live out this new life in, the, in the, uh, every single aspect, no matter how earthy it is, to bring the life of Christ and the life of heaven into every part of my life. So, there is this phrase that uh, Christ seated at the right hand of God and, and what that means for us and then what it means that Christ is your life. And the last thing I just mentioned is that you, he says in verse 3, you've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And that is taken together with the appearing of your glory in verse 4. So there's this relationship that your life is in some way hidden with Christ. It's hidden in God, but one day it will appear in glory. So there's that movement here. And if your life is hidden with Christ in God, it means in the first place, that your life is put away safely. It's protected. It's beyond all the powers of the earth to tear it away from Christ. It is secure under the very guardianship of God Himself. Sometimes because of the suffering and distresses of of Christians, their life seems more like death than life. But truly, your life is out of danger And you wait patiently until it will be revealed when He comes. And secondly, if your life is hidden with Christ, it means that you are intimate with Christ. You're in the closest relationship with Christ. And amazingly, He says, with Christ, together with Christ, we are in God. Not Christ first, then me. It says, with Christ. Christ, we are in God. We're in the most intimate place with God, rooted in the very life of the living God, joined to everlasting, abundant, boundless life that will spill out to affect the way you live now and will finally usher into this glory when He appears. And... This final verse shows that in all of your seeking and all of your setting your mind on the things above, that there is a glorious end in it. There's a glorious end. No matter how difficult, no matter how much suffering and pain there is in the midst of it. Because the Christ on whom you set all of your hope will finally appear. The life of yours that is bound up in Christ will finally be revealed in glory for what it really is. And many commentators take us at this point to 1 John, where John says that we are God's children now. Okay? John says we're God's children. But I love this. He says, what we will be has not yet appeared. What we will be in glory and manifested as the amazing kings and queens of the earth. You can't see it yet. Hasn't appeared. Hadn't come on the scene yet. But when he comes, John says, we'll become just like him. We'll be remade into his glorious image. Our very bodies will be transformed into the body of his glory 
as Paul says in Philippians. Our whole being will be made absolutely clean, as clean as his humanity. That's how clean we'll be. Whatever glory he has as the God-man, as, as the human, the new human being, we will have that glory. And all of this seeking will not end in vain. Very different than those silly contraptions that would take guys down on the ground. I saw one where I, it just scared me to death. They're pushing this contraption. And before they pushed it off, you're hoping it was just a short rock, but the camera went down. It was like 200 feet. And sure enough, the thing just, boom. I don't know how, but the guy walked away from it. You know, So I guess like, that's okay, I'm fine. You know, For us, the end is so drastically different. As we spend ourselves for this Christ, and whatever we lose, however demeaned we are, whatever distress and persecution and death occurs, the final end is glory. And we are, I've said this before, but we're like Strider in Lord of the Rings, right? You just see Strider, see him walking in the forest and see him in his plain clothes, you see him in the pub drinking a beer. It just doesn't look like he's really Aragorn, son of Arathorn, Elisar, the elf stone. just doesn't look like it. But in that final day, he's fully revealed. When he goes to the spirits in the mountain and holds forth the sword and calls them to battle, you realize, this dude is the king. (laughs) I thought he was just Strider. And brothers and sisters, that's where you're headed. People thought you were just Strider. People thought you were just regular old Joes. But amazingly... All of grace, mind you, in spite of the fact that we, like everyone else, had sinned so grievously against God, we are made glorious kings and queens to reign with Him, to actually enact judgment with Him, and to be glorified with Him forever. Let us pray. O Lord, We pray that the glory of who we are and what we have in Christ will turn us away from the offerings of this world, the promises of this world that offer life in so many ways to us. I pray, Lord, that if there are those here who are seeking Christ, perhaps exploring the claims of Christianity, that they might have their hearts open to the majesty and glory of this one who died for sinners, who alone manifests the real heart of God, a heart of self-sacrifice, a heart of self-giving. Oh Lord, what good news to find out that there's not just this evil dictator, this, this God of the pagans who wreaks havoc in people's lives, but there is the God who sacrifices Himself, who comes to earth as a man and 
and stands in our place to die for us and then takes our humanity into glory and one day will bring us into that glory. Oh Lord, may you draw people to yourself. This is life for us. This is hope for us. This mighty Savior who brings us into glory. This mighty Savior who even now is our life. Oh, bless us, Lord, and enable us to seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Amen.